for joining me for episode 53 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Sometimes an unfair element pops up in a woman's picture that drives me bonkers. Why, for example, was Barbara Stanwyck saddled with so many leading men who are absolute duds? It's hard to believe her hard-boiled dame in Ladies of Leisure falls to pieces and flings bits of toast in her face, all for the glory of Ralph Graves. Never has an actor been blessed with a name more allegoric. The lad had no spark in him. Regis Toomey in Shopworn, James Rennie in Illicit, David Manners in The Miracle Woman, John Bowles in Stella Dallas. She's surrounded by somnambulists and frozen cod. What's Danny had to endure when she didn't have Ricardo Cortez or Joel McRae to give herself a reason to summon a three-alarm fire of emotion? Hollywood committed many sins against underappreciated and underused supporting players. As Glenda Farrell proved in her Torchy Blaine series and Girl Missing from 1933, she should have been billed first many times over. She was a dab hand with hilarious delivery and champion throwaway lines, and she could tear the guts out of a meaty dramatic part like the withering dame she plays in I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Worst of all, though, is how the studio system failed Teresa Harris. She tops my list of sassmouth dames who should have been much bigger than they were. She had the talent, the range, the work ethic, and the pristine beauty to reign at the box office. She was a standout player in musicals, hard-boiled pre-codes, dramas, horror pictures, romance, and film noir. But because she was black and beautiful, Hollywood boxed her into limited roles. In her breakthrough year of 1933, when she was featured in some of the best woman's pictures in cinema history, there is a moment that is so unjust, so needlessly cruel, that I grind my teeth to the bone each time I see it. The moment that makes me smolder like a banked wall of hot coals occurs during Professional Sweetheart. In many ways, William Cedar's snappy pre-code includes many subversive moments. First, we get Ginger Rogers playing a spoiled, manipulative diva, of which I can't get enough when she's holding out for black undies and longs for an occasion to sin. Teresa Harris plays Vera, the African-American woman who works for Ginger's radio star. And she shows us what it was probably like for many African-American women on the payroll of demanding divas. Ginger's Glory Eden steals Vera's fashionable moves to use on the stage in her own act. She copies the dance, the music, and the style from a woman in the margins. White singers have worn grooves in the floor, stealing music and dance moves from African-American artists. The plot becomes truly progressive at one point when Vera signs as a spokesmodel for a soap company and stars in a radio program. For the first time, we get the impression that the more talented African-American woman finally gains recognition over the blonde. 
As the national face of a major brand, Vera smoothly ascends to the stage in front of the program. Viewers see Teresa Harris stand in front of an orchestra in a microphone wearing a glamorous beaded gown designed by Walter Plunkett. With a crisscross bodice, the beading, and the oversized embellished shoulder design, it reminds me of that gown that Joan Crawford wears for her number with Fred Astaire in Dancing Lady. Teresa Harris looks so chic. But then the scene pulls the rug out from under you, or rather from Teresa Harris. When we see Teresa Harris command the stage and sing, we don't actually get to see her. We miss out on the spectacle of a glamorous black woman leading an orchestra for a soap sponsor. Instead, for some reason I cannot fathom, the camera turns away from the star on the stage and instead shows the white people somewhere else listening to her on the radio. Ginger and her entourage listen and what they think about Vera takes precedence over Vera's actual performance. By any estimation, Teresa outsings and outclasses Ginger in range and delivery, yet she merely becomes this disembodied voice wafting over the radio waves. The primacy of white expression takes dominance over Teresa Harris's performance, which iterates the larger structure of racial hegemony. The film tries to silence and minimize Teresa's superior performance. Clearly, the black woman is better than the white woman, but we don't get to watch. I'm absolutely gutted for Teresa Harris and that she was robbed of that moment in the spotlight. The scene is a crime against women's pictures of the commitment they have to giving women a chance to take center stage and shine. If I lit a candle each time I shouted when Teresa Harris appeared on screen in a role that asked her to do little more than Donna Maid's costume and smile, as she did in Night After Night with Mae West, Merrily We Go to Hell with Sylvia Sidney, Penthouse with Mae Clark and Myrna Loy, and the clientele in Sidney's salon in The Women, I would be surrounded by more dancing flames than there are in Nola Darling's bedroom. Donald Bogle, in his impressive study, Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, The Story of Black Hollywood, records Harris's frustration at the scope of her career in Hollywood. In an interview, she recalled, I never had the chance to rise above the role of maid in Hollywood movies. My color was against me any way you looked at it. The fact that I was not hot stamped me either as uppity or relegated me to the eternal role of stooge or servant. I can sing, but so can hundreds of other girls. Hollywood had no parts for me. But she showed that she deserved better roles. Joseph von Sternberg, whose fierce reputation for perfection at every level of performance and detail, chose Teresa Harris for a nightclub number in Thunderbolt from 1929. Teresa's stage appearance predates Marlena Dietrich in The Blue Angel playing Lola Lola. Unlike the gritty, downturned shabbiness of the numbers that Marlena performs in dingy bloomers and dusty top hats, Teresa Harris anticipates the high-gloss gold standard of the new decade. Arrayed in delicate drop earrings that swing with the beat, an intricate beaded frock trimmed with ostrich feathers, Teresa Harris embodies impeccable glamour that became the staple of the 1930s productions. 
She appeared the same year as Nina Mae McKinney's breakout role in Hallelujah, an all-black musical helmed by King Vidor. Whereas Teresa Harris held out for what Hollywood had to offer, Nina Mae McKinney legged it for Europe and performed in capital cities billed as the Black Garbo. Teresa had two significant roles in 1933 besides Professional Sweetheart. She played supporting roles to Jean Harlow in Hold Your Man and Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface. It's distressing how many critics write about Teresa Harris in Babyface and refer to her only as The Maid. She has a name. It's Chico. Barbara Stanwyck wastes no time reminding men that her friendship with Chico takes priority over her relationships with them. She tells her father, the pimp, that if Chico goes, so does she. She roars at her money-bag benefactor, the head of a Gotham bank, when he tells her to get rid of the colored woman that Chico stays. Chico's friendship is so important to her that Lily Powers trades an actual role in the hay with a rail car worker for the two women's passage to New York City. Teresa Harris's Chico may wear a maid's uniform, but once Lily has a finely feathered penthouse love nest as a kept woman, she matches Lily in furs and expensive clothes. The women look like twins. When Chico sees Lily alone on Christmas reading Nietzsche, she says she worries about her since the servants have the time off. Chico isn't a servant. She isn't the maid. I believe Chico makes it possible for them to leave Erie, Pennsylvania for the Big Apple because she does what Lily wasn't able to do. She finally cancels that no good Mr. Powers. Powers lost the battle when he tried to to sack Chico. He wants to exert some control over the women at one point, so he sends Chico to tend to the still outside the speakeasy that he runs. In the middle of a vicious row with Lily, when he tells her she's no good because she brained a paying John over the head with a beer bottle rather than sleep with him, Stanwyck responds in kind and tears into him. Chico interrupts the verbal brawl with a mild-mannered, matter-of-fact request that Mr. Powers go and tend the still, which is smoking something awful, she says. When the scene cuts to Powers in the shack, the first thing he does is lean over the pipes and turn down the valve on the gas. Clearly, it had been turned all the way up. And then it explodes, wiping Mr. Powers out with the force of his cheap hooch. Chico did Lily and the whole town a favor by taking out a low-down, no-account man. Teresa Harris must have figured that if Hollywood only doled out crumbs to her, she had to steal the bread and butter of her time on screen. In Renee Claire's The Flame of New Orleans from 1941, Teresa Harris steals the picture from Marlena Dietrich so handily, so completely, that the picture drags when she's missing on screen. There wouldn't be a picture without Teresa Harris as Clementine. Fresh off the boat from Europe, Marlena Dietrich's Claire Ledoux, also known as the Countess and her maid Clementine, search for money bags so they can keep them in the style into which they've grown accustomed. I would not fault Marlena Dietrich for all the fur from the Scarlet Empress, but she is constrained by the plot here in Renee Claire's picture. 
The most dramatic move she has to make is a swoon, and even then she just sort of wilts to one side in her chair. For a song, she sat nearly motionless at a piano. Marlena is at her best in the picture when she's lounging around in her panelettes and corset, complaining about bilking Roland Young. Roland Young's character, the rich Giroux, overhears her, becomes outraged, and thus necessitates the bawdy cousin who Marlena masquerades in a subplot. Yet Marlena is stifled in heavy period costumes by Rene Hubert, a pile of fussy curls, her signature white eyeliner, and false lashes. It's almost as if a bargain were struck. You can have a glamorous wardrobe and styling, or you can have but one costume and have the fun of moving the plot forward. Without Teresa Harris's Clementine, this picture would lack pace and dimension. Clementine talks to men on the street. She alights from carriages, delivers messages, enters a man's house, and flirts with strangers without a chaperone. She has more freedom of movement than the so-called Countess of New Orleans. Clementine watches satisfied when Marlena faints at the opera, but she feels the action, filling the Countess in on what's happening around her. As they exit the opera, Clementine informs her that Giroux is behind her. Is he looking at me? She asks Clementine. Can't you feel it? Clementine replies. In an ostrich feather cloak, Marlena looks divine, but she is boxed in by convention, and she has to make a beeline for her carriage home. Clementine, though, can dawdle outside. When Bob Evans, who plays William, Roland Young's footman, meets Clementine after the opera, where, where Marlena faints, he asks, Are you afraid of the dark? Teresa Harris surveys his visage and says, You aren't so dark. She invites a saucy flirtation with the most handsome man in the picture. Bob Evans wears a three-tiered capelet that lends additional heft to his frame. He has sculpted wavy hair and a killer smile. Who cares about landing Roland Young when William is a swoon merchant? William continues the banter with a standout compliment. He says of the Countess, she's the most beautiful woman in New Orleans, after you. Has there ever been such a declaration in a Marlena Dietrich picture that she's the runner-up in a beauty contest? In this case, it happens to be true. Marlena plays two different characters, and she still cannot outpace Teresa Harris, who is pared down without the need for artifice. As Clementine, Teresa Harris does not have benefit of elaborate maquillage or costume. She's stuck in gingham for the duration, but Teresa's character wears an ensemble that's comely and not without embellishment. Festooned in her head wrap are silk flower and bright glittery balls. She has gold hoop earrings that add bounce to her sass-mouth dialogue. Teresa's hair resembles Marlena's in a cascade of curls over her forehead, but Marlena's pile is static. Teresa's hair is soft and unfussy. Her skin looks lit from within. Look at all the light that beams off her cheekbones and forehead. Rudolph Maté's lighting is a love letter to Teresa Harris. She also boasts a tiny waist. She's a knockout. In one scene, she's called to Giroux's house. 
Roland Young questions her about the Countess's habits. He wants to arrange a meeting. The Countess doesn't do much, she tells him. She shops in Paris. But she does go out driving in the park, she tells Giroux. Pleased, having received the information he wanted, he thanks Clementine with a tip. He tosses gold coins into her décolletage. When the production code office declared this picture dirty, they surely must have been reacting to the scene with the gold coins. Without the right touch, the scene could have taken a very troubling turn. Although it's doubtful that Clementine is a slave, since she has traveled extensively with Marlena in St. Petersburg, London, Paris, and Vienna, the picture is set during the antebellum period of chattel slavery in America. At the time, white men had unfettered access to black women's bodies for less than the five gold coins Giroux gives Clementine. But instead of reference historic brutality, the scene plays out as a body farce. One of the reasons for its success is that Roland Young is very small and sexless. It would have been altogether different if Bruce Cabot had tossed the coins, Marlena's leading man. But from Roland Young, gold coins are a tribute, not a threat. Clementine clutches them into light. William laughs with approval standing by. Giroux never lays a hand on Clementine. Back at the house, she shakes the coins loose. In Claire's boudoir, the woman lolling about in her delicates is impressed. She wants to know where Clementine got the coins in daytime. Marlena's remark makes them peers, women who must depend on the largesse of men to survive. As a pretend countess, though, Claire is not permitted to accept cold cash. She has to hold out for marriage. Later, in a bold-faced lie, when she receives a dazzling diamond necklace from Giroux once they are engaged, Claire says she's not used to accepting gifts from men. Marlena is always behind the mask of genteel femininity in this picture, stifled by needlepoint, by vapid ditties about spring. But when she attempts a little diversion in the form of a ship's captain, Bruce Cabot, Clementine's reaction shot tells another story. Teresa Harris's acting style is natural. If she doesn't say what she thinks directly, viewers can read it on her face as clearly as the morning headlines. For the ruse with the monkey, when Cabot drops by to see Marlena, Teresa Harris tells us that she's following the plot to secure their financial well-being. Clementine has no time to waste for Marlena making revisions to the plot based on her loins. Clementine can enjoy William for his company and for the lusty promise behind the looks they exchange. Claire, though, is supposed to hold out for wedding bands. Clementine has a romantic ending with William. Let's hope they took a boat back to Paris. When a picture flops, it's interesting to see who takes the blame. The principals turned on one another after the dismal showing of the flame of New Orleans. I might add that no one has said a word against Teresa Harris. How could they? You can't fault her performance. Marlena Dietrich, in her memoir, attacked the director and especially her leading man. She wrote, Cabot was an awfully stupid actor, unable to remember his lines or cues. Nor would Renee Clare, who didn't speak a word of English, lend him a helping hand. 
Marlena accused Bruce Cabot of being conceited for refusing her help. Then she wrote that she had to pay for his acting lessons. Maybe she meant an acting coach? Either way, it seems unlikely. Of Renee Claire, Marlena said she didn't particularly like him, but she didn't hate him as much as the rest of the cast and crew did. She wrote that the team despised Renee Claire. Marlena's memoir contradicts the hospitality she showed to Renee Claire and Rene Hubert, who had both fled Nazi-occupied France. As a devoted Francophile, Marlena cooked dinner for them every week with other members of the French contingent in Hollywood. The scriptwriter, Norman Krasna, probably has the most vicious commentary on why the picture failed at the box office. I don't agree with his take or the results. In an interview included in Backstory One, Interviews with Screenwriters of Hollywood's Golden Age, edited by Patrick McGilligan, Krasna remembered advising Renee Claire about how to cast Marlena. So I said to Claire, since you've got one frozen face, try and get someone like Cary Grant for the other part. Otherwise, it won't even be talking heads, it'll be looking heads. They got Bruce Cabot as far and away from Cary Grant as you can get in the world. He stands still, she stands still. But there's only one person in the world who stands still more than both of them. For the third part, I said, get Manju. And they went and got Roland Young. You couldn't tell if his lips were moving. Between him, Cabot, and Dietrich, three people who didn't move. I couldn't disagree more. Marlena is constrained by the decorum of the 1840s and Krasna's script. Bruce Cabot never seemed more dashing or appealing than he does in this picture. He isn't one bit frozen. It may have been a dud at the box office, but there are so many things to love about this fairy tale featuring a wedding dress floating on the Mississippi. The Flame of New Orleans combines many of the most talented supporting players of the 1930s. Clarence Muse plays Samuel, Marlena's coachman. Muse had earned a law degree in addition to his prodigious acting credits. In Otto Preminger's autobiography, he recalls how he fired Eugene Pellette when Pellette refused to eat at the same table as Clarence Muse, and rightly so. Misha Auer and Franklin Pangborn turn up to steal a scene with their whisper campaign about Marlena's exploits in St. Petersburg. It's a camp delight. Laura Hope Cruz sports an ear horn. Anna Revere is here to look dour. And Andy Devine has the face of a cherub and the raspy voice of a barroom devil. Teresa Harris was smart about the money she made in Hollywood. She didn't win an Oscar like Hattie McDaniel, but her legacy lives on and has inspired many women, and she lived comfortably after she left Hollywood. Back to Teresa Harris and professional sweetheart, an image of her character Vera from that picture appears in the artist Kara Walker's installation, Chronology of Black Suffering, Images and Notes, 1992-2007. to Kara Walker selected a still from Professional Sweetheart, in which Teresa Harris stands next to Franklin Pangborn. Her arms are outstretched. Kara Walker reimagined the image by adding red paint to Teresa Harris's wrists and splashed across the apron she wore. The blood splatter jars against the orderly domestic scene presented in the film. 
Walker's interpretation suggests a deeper historical subtext underneath the glossy Hollywood production. Teresa Harris inspired the playwright Lynn Nottage. In 2010, Nottage wrote, By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, a play that reimagines the thankless role of Hollywood maids from the 1930s, such as those Teresa Harris played. Nottage won the Edgerton Foundation's Award for Best New American Play. It opened in 2001 to critical acclaim. Sanaa Lathan played Vera Stark. Nottage modeled the character with a keen eye to how race informed the screwball genre. I'd like to think that the director, Renee Clare, who collaborated with the screenwriter Norman Krasna, that they played with those same stereotypes when they made The Flame of New Orleans. As the most desirable woman on screen who moves the action forward has the best lines and reaction shots, Teresa Harris shines over and above the white leading lady. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 54 when I talk about Shelley Winters in My Man and I from 1952.